Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. Been a really busy week, but um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try and cheer us up at the end of the week by trying to talk about death. Excellent. Thanks very much. That's perfect. I mean, it's still dark and miserable in uh, Blighty, but that's all right. Yeah. We'll uh, actually we've got related stuff uh, coming up the week after as well, but we'll come back to that. Yeah. This week, if you are around and you know where we used to hang out and do our recordings, we're doing a live Q and A. No, not this. Oh, it is this coming week. Yes. I'm so confused about days. Sunday, the 25th of February, we will be at the Cross Keys Pub in Tame at three o'clock doing a Q&A and Nikki from our very first podcast will be along just talking about her incredible story and how we all got started so if you if you fancy coming down and you're in Oxfordshire do otherwise I know a lot of you are a million miles away from Oxfordshire so we will certainly be posting it on our Patreon account thank you to everyone who's been joining Patreon patreon.com forward slash TQM pod Lauren welcome to you this week thank you so much for joining another person to really helped the show this is really getting momentum now and we're so grateful yeah thanks thank you lauren and um yeah we'll keep you posted about how the q a goes well if nobody turns up it could be de- we'll, we'll post it'll just be an a. a yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um but it'd be great to kind of catch up with nikki again because it was i certainly i don't know if it was the first podcast we put out first episode but it was certainly the first one we started working on it was a investigation into the haunting that she experienced so it'd be lovely to catch up with her again because she was so brilliant and so open about her experiences so nearly four years ago that now oh dear blimey i know god okay wow There'll be children at school who were just born then, (laughs) which is a weird way of thinking about it. I don't know why I thought of that. (laughs) Well, it's funny you mentioned birth. Oh, is it? Because, as I said, I'm going to focus on death today. So before we get into the episode, I think it's worth saying we are going to talk about death. We're going to talk about some near-death experiences. If you've got little ears or you're a bit squeamish. I've got little ears. (laughs) If you've got littler ears than Ben around you and you are a bit squeamish, you might want to bear that in mind. So, but um, yeah, let's get into it. Now, it started off, I was thinking as human beings that we have a rather strange and intense relationship with the notion of death. Perhaps driven by the fact that it's one of life's biggest mysteries, I guess, if not the biggest mystery. so, yes, yes. So many people have tried to answer it in so many different ways. Yeah, and I was thinking, and with mysteries, especially one that's so existential as death, it kind of taps into our fears in a way. So I was mulling the fact that that probably makes it not surprising that most, if not all, cultures have some strong and often quite detailed beliefs about death and what happens when we die. When you think of the concepts, they are quite weird. From a Christian's perspective, our souls travel from this world, where they either reside in heaven or purgatory. I think of the image of St Peter standing at the pearly gates, you know, almost with a checklist deciding whether you're going to come in or not. You know, we think about it in that sense. It's such a strange thing. And this theme of the soul going on is also reflected in Judaism, with some Orthodox Jews actually believing it's not just the soul that kind of gets reborn, it's the body as well. Right, right. And the afterlife concept is also shared in the Muslim faith. Now, Native American culture has a number of beliefs about death, but this concept of an afterlife is also a consistent theme. 
among most of Native American culture, but not the Blackfeet Nation people. Oh, okay. They are one of the exceptions. They believe that when you die, you die forever. Oh, that's less cheery. It's less cheery. However, there is an amazing legend about how they came to that conclusion. Oh. So the folklore goes something like this. At the start of days, there was only one old man and one old woman. And they had to basically decide how people were going to live and die. Now, they had many debates on how us humans should look, how many fingers we should have on each hand. I think one of them basically said four fingers and a thumb and the other one said ten fingers and a thumb on each hand. (laughs) God, I'm glad the five won. Yeah. They also argued about the positioning of our eyes. Should they be horizontal or vertical? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a great story. Basically, this old man and old woman at the start of creation, they couldn't agree on anything. (laughs) Nothing. Wait, 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 hang on though. Where were their eyes? I did wonder that, but I wonder if they were more spiritual creatures. But they are described as an old man and an old woman. I see. Or maybe maybe one of them looked like a Picasso painting and one of them looked like us. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not going to point out the plot, plot flaw, but it's okay. Well, when it came to the question of death, the old man, because they were arguing so much, I think, suggested tossing a buffalo chip... <laughs> Now, so glad you finished that. Session. Yeah. Now, buffalo chip to me and you, Ben, buffalo done. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. He came up with the idea that they chuck a buffalo chip or some buffalo dung in the river. If it floated, he said, people who died would remain that way for four days, then live again. Specific? Yep. If the dung sank, the people who had died would remain dead forever. Oh, it sank. So he thought this was quite a good way of stopping all the arguments with the old woman about every decision they were making. I tell you what, I'm going to throw stuff in the river next time. (laughs) Well, the old man and the old woman, they had another disagreement about this idea of throwing dung in the river. The old woman said, no, we should use a stone. (laughs) And she won out the argument. I think the old man had had enough of the argument. was like, yeah, whatever, we'll use a stone. He didn't point out they would never float. Well, yeah, as you as you rightly predicted, Ben, they threw the stone into the river, it sank, so it was decided that when people die, they stay dead. That's um oh that's a bit of a shame. Well there is a little bit of a twist. Eventually the old woman had a daughter, and she desperately tried to convince the old man to reverse the decision. But he refused, saying, No, we've made a decision and we're gonna stick to it. I just can't stand another argument with your mother. Yeah, and this is why... (laughs) And wash your top eye and your bottom eye. (laughs) Yeah, and this is why the Blackfeet people believe that when you die, you stay dead forever. I see. I I don't think I've ever heard such a brilliant piece of kind of folklore or spiritual belief that connects... To the fact that when you die, that's it. <laughs> it's no. so it's it's almost it's like a romantic story, and you kind of go, oh, well, but the conclusion is that you're dead, basically. I sort of picture them almost like a pair of Raymond Briggs characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, 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 that'd be perfect, wouldn't it? 
yeah, apart from the Blackfeet people, I would say, I don't know if you'd agree, Ben, most cultures or religions believe we go on after we die, whether in another realm or as with Buddhism and Hinduism, I guess recycled in this world. But it's about you going yeah. on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I, then my research kind of moved to superstitions and beliefs about when we die. And I guess one of the most poignant times we consider life after death is after someone we know passes away. And I guess that's no surprise. That or a pet. Or a pet, yes. And then, and that's no surprise that there's a number of superstitions that have become associated with death. So I'm going to run through some of these. Some of these you may have heard of, some of them you, you wouldn't have. But there's a belief that windows should be kept closed after a death to prevent the soul from aimlessly flying away. Yeah, I have heard that. I think my grandparents used to talk about this. Really? Yes. Um, windows closed and then curtains closed out of respect. But my grand definitely said there was something about souls right. entering the house or something like being confused, something like this. Well, there seems to be a bit of debate about the best way to deal with this because there is also another belief that you should open a window so the soul can escape. Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, this was more in, like, the houses as the funeral procession went up the street right. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, open the windows so the soul can escape. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, you. So if you want to be sure, you've either got to open the window so the soul can escape or you've got to keep it shut so it doesn't fly away. And then, but if it flies... Oh, I, I, if it flies away, surely that's a good thing? Well, I don't know. I think the word is aimlessly. Oh, aimlessly. Oh, I see. Yeah, but just almost like drifts out into the ether and disappears. Hanging outside maybe. the co-op. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Asking people to buy it a drink. At yeah. a bus stop, waiting for a bus. It never comes. Um, this is quite a common one. Mirrors should be covered to prevent the spirit yes. being trapped in them. Yes, that is common. Similarly, some believe that family photos should be placed face down to avoid them becoming possessed. Oh, I was always told that was out of respect as well. So uh, the respect being the spirit doesn't want to be reminded about right. what had happened. But, oh, that's interesting, being possessed. Oh, that's spookier. The next one, I thought, actually, when I read it, I thought it was obvious, but I'd never thought about it before. When the deceased is carried out of the house, it should be feet first so that it can, can't look back into the house and get another family member to join them. Uh, it could sort of put his head back. Yeah, no, it depends, yeah. Or use a mirror. Oh, no, the mirrors are covered. Oh, OK. But I, 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 and I wondered, um, I wonder if, I, I would imagine that undertakers probably still do that today, whether they know the origins of that or not. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it seems respectful too. There's quite a lot about when you view the body of the deceased, you should cover your mouth so the spirit can't enter your body. Uh, similarly, some believe that you should always hold your breath when you walk past a graveyard for similar reasons. Oh. Or at least cover your mouth. Yes. Again, didn't know this one. Bell ringing at funerals was intended to keep bad spirits away. Oh, was it? I didn't. I had no idea. Which made me think of like when you clean a house for spirits and stuff you know make noise kind of make sense yes well funnily enough talking about um nikki do you remember she told us that the um 
to get rid of the spirit that was bothering her child, the medium had told her to be clapping and yeah, yeah, making a making noise. a happy noise around I the house. I think we've yeah. had those kind of conversations with Trudy as well. And I think so. Yeah, and obviously got the sage burning that comes in. Big sage. Yeah, big said. sage. Yeah. <laughs> I see you're still taking their money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now the next one I thought was probably started by Undertakers, Ben. It is. If you don't pay the funeral bill, the deceased will not rest in their graves. It's got to be an that undertaker who's be, come yeah. up with that, hasn't it? Oh, well, you've got to pay your bill. Otherwise, it'll come back to you. Probably one of the most macabre ones that I came across is the Anglo-Saxon tradition of cutting off the feet of the deceased to prevent the corpse walking away. Ew. Yeah. Glad we don't do that one now. That's, can't you just tie them together or something? Well, you'd think, you know, but I guess they can undo it. If they can walk away, they can undo it. I mean, that's pretty mean. Yeah, it's pretty... Cutting off the feet of your granny? Yeah. No. Yeah, apparently. Anglo-Saxons. I guess, Ben, we could probably fill a couple of episodes with lengthy philosophical debates about the merits of these superstitions, religious beliefs around life after death... But I thought, I tell you what, I was starting to wondering, what does science say about the subject? Oh, yeah, what does science say? What research and experiments have been done into life after death? And I started thinking about a famous paper by Dr. Duncan McDougall titled, here's our first good title of the day, Hypothesis concerning soul substance together with experimental evidence of such substance. Another one of those page-turners. Well, unsurprisingly, that title didn't catch on. But, Ben, you may have heard about this experiment under its more popular known title, the 21 Grams Experiment. Ah, yes. There's even a film named after this. There is a film named after it. Before we get into it, let's give you a little bit of background about Duncan McDougall. He was born in Glasgow in 1866, moved to Massachusetts in the United States in his 20s. He studied and received a medical degree from Boston University School of Medicine. Now, the experiment that he became so synonymous for, it kind of came about through chance while he was working as a volunteer at a hospital for incurable patients in Roxbury. Now, there's a weird twist to this. The hospital had originally been the home of a textile merchant and then got converted into a hospital. But they'd left behind a large platform scales. <laughs> oh, like like people used to weigh themselves by putting a penny in no, on the platform? I, I, no, I think it's more industrial than that. So, oh, I see. oh I, not, a, not a train platform, sorry. No, I'd seen it as like a flatbed that you would, I guess, if you're a textile merchant, you put the bundles oh, on. Oh, I've got you. And that was left behind... And was still in the hospital after it had been, well, once it had been turned into a hospital. Right. So McDougall became fascinated with the idea that if we had a soul, just like any other part of our body, it might have a weight to it. Yes. And if the soul is supposed to leave the body when we die, then maybe this would result in a change of body weight just after the point of death. Ben, it's fair to say that McDougall became a little bit obsessed with this idea. He felt he was in a unique position to explore it further. So you think about it, he's working in a hospital full of terminally ill patients. There just happens to be a large flatbed weighing scales in the building 
And he's got this idea that the soul should have a weight and that weight would obviously change when you left the body. He devised what he saw as the perfect experiment, placing the dying patients in their beds on the scales to record their weight, then record the weight just after the point of death to see if there was any difference. If their soul exited and did leave the body, the patient would weigh less immediately after their death, right? Simple. That makes sense. He carried out this experiment with six patients over the course of five years um, with the help of other doctors. <laughs> the hospital, well, they were slightly concerned about his lack of ethics <laughs> and the ethics in the experiment. Oh, no, what was he doing? Well, I think it was just... I, I, I didn't go into detail. I got the impression that, you know, you've got these these people who are dying and you want them to have a kind of dignified death and he's kind of pulling their beds around and putting them on scales. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, the indignity of it. Right, right. And, and there's something coming up that will, will annoy and upset you. I I'm was, just I'm I'm, warning you. Oh, no, it's not about a dog, is it? It's, it? There is some dogs coming up. Oh, no, please. Oh, no. I won't go into detail, but... Um, but it seemed in a, in a way the hospital were more concerned they might lose some funding because it was quite a macabre idea. Yeah, I could understand that. But they reluctantly agreed to McDougall's experiments. Now, let's get into the study. So out of the six patients in the study, two of them were ruled out or eliminated for technical issues. Didn't go into detail of what they were, but obviously something had gone wrong. Of the remaining four... Only one registered a change in weight, and that change in weight was 21 grams. Mm -hmm. It's about the weight of an AA battery. Yeah, okay. Slightly less than an ounce. As you can probably predict, it was the one successful result, as McDougall saw it, that he focused on and he wrote his paper about. Uh All right, I'm just going to say... Can you see what he wanted to see? I'm just going to say it quickly. He also tried the experiment with 15 dogs. 15? They showed no weight difference. But McDougall dismissed this and said that it proved that dogs did not have a soul. That's the absolute conclusion. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. I don't like this, McDougall. No. Now, ethics aside... It's plain to see there's a lot of problems with this experiment. You know, ethics, you know, ethics is one thing. But, you know, the paper that followed it as well, you know, there's a small sample size. The fact that only one of the four patients showed any weight loss. But that did not stop the New York Times publishing the paper on the 11th of March 1907. In fact, they broke their own rules not to publish scientific papers that had not been peer-reviewed first. Uh, because it was so sensational, I imagine. I guess it was too good a story to, for them to miss, right? Somebody's basically not only discovered that we have a soul, that it leaves the body, but it actually has a weight to it. I yeah. mean, you know, you can see why they jumped all over it. Well, in May of 1907, two other respected journals also published the work. The American Medicine Journal and the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. However, the wider scientific community dismissed and picked apart the paper and the experiment. But it was championed by some religious groups as scientific proof of the existence of the soul and life after death. And as you alluded to, it was used as the title of the 2003 movie starring Sean Penn and Naomi Watts called 
21 grams. Mm. And I thought that was about very precise cooking. I was very, very, <laughs> very upset. Yeah. What struck me a little bit is just the coincidences of how these things develop. If there hadn't been those weighing scales, he probably would have never have thought of the experiment or done it, you know. But yeah, I mean, why there was the variation of 21 grams with the one patient, I guess we'll never know. But I mean, that seems like an outlier anomaly. Yeah. And perhaps a failure of instruments. Yeah, instruments or something that happened to the body, you know, escape of gas or, you know, something at the point. Oh, of I death. have very heavy gas. <laughs> yeah, 21 grams worth. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me put it this way. After Valentine's Day... <laughs> I had a massive feast and there was at least 40 grams. <laughs> the, uh, a full-on feast rather than the ice cream version, I guess. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Oh, God, now I want a feast. Oh, I love a feast. Yeah, I really do. We could do a whole episode on how you eat a feast, couldn't we? Yeah, there are no paranormal ways to eat a feast. Oof, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Ben, uh, over 100 years after the 21-gram experiment, Scientists are still exploring what happens when we die. Now, one of the largest studies was conducted by the University of Southampton in England in 2014. They looked into over 2,000 cases of cardiac arrest, collecting data from 15 hospitals across the UK, US and Australia. Now, the mind-blowing headline is they found that out of the 360 people who had been revived after cardiac arrest... 40% of them had some awareness of the period when they were technically described as clinically dead. Right, NDEs, I guess. Yeah, 40%. That is a lot. And these included a 57-year-old who reported hearing two beeps coming from the machine next to him that went off at three-minute intervals. The research suggests that this patient's brain had not shut down completely after their heart stopped and the brain activity lasted for a number of minutes, hence why he was able to sense the beep. Oh, I see. Uh, the results cast question on the perceived medical wisdom of what happens to the brain after we technically die. Dr Sam Parnier, who's co-author of the paper, said, this is paradoxical since the brain typically ceases function within 20 to 30 seconds of the heart stopping and doesn't resume again until the heart has restarted. But Ben, you know, forty percent of the people in this study had this period of brain activity, and I guess we would describe that as some kind of consciousness that went on much longer for that thirty seconds after their heart stopped beating. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, did anyone look at the brain activity? I'm going to come on to a bit of brain activity. Okay. Yeah, and I guess I, I'm still that man who could hear the beeping of the machine for minutes after he was technically dead. I just think it's quite amazing. I guess this study's not claiming that there's any proof of life after death, but I guess it does put into question some of the scientific assumptions around what happens when we die, or, or conventional wisdom at least. And I, I was thinking it kind of is the concept of a soul in a way. For If you take the man in the study... His body had technically died, but his consciousness was still active. And that went on for quite a while. So Mm. it's the soul of consciousness. You could maybe describe it as that. But it Mm. certainly went went on after we would regard it, him as being dead. 
Now, I'm going to come back to scientific experiments and uh, some of the brain activity stuff that you were just mentioning. Uh, I'm going to come back to some of that in a minute. But I thought it was worth looking at a famous case. You may have heard of this. This is the case of Pam Reynolds. No, I don't think so. It's an amazing story. So as way of background, Pam Reynolds was an American singer-songwriter from Atlanta, Georgia. In 1991, when she was just 35 years old, Reynolds started to experience symptoms of dizziness, loss of speech and restricted body movement. After a CT scan and other tests, doctors discovered she had a giant aneurysm on the base of her brain. Now, because of the size and the location of the aneurysm, traditional surgery was not an option, way too dangerous. However, um, Reynolds was referred to someone called Dr. Robert Spetzler, who was in Arizona, and he developed a new pioneering procedure which they thought might be able to help Pam. I must warn you, Ben, there are some long words coming up which I am going to mispronounce really badly. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't be an episode if there weren't. No, no. It's normally names, but now it's words. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're progressing. It starts off reasonably easy. So the procedure that they wanted to undertake with Pam uh, involved inducing a hypothermic cardiac arrest, basically cooling the patient's body to 15 degrees Celsius, which is around 60 degrees in Fahrenheit. So that stops the heartbeat, breathing, and it drains all the blood from the brain. And in this state, the operation on the aneurysm becomes a much safer proposition. So Pam Reynolds agreed to the procedure, which involved more than 20 doctors, nurses and technicians. Wowzers. Yeah. What year is this, by the way? So this was in the 90s, around the mid-90s. Oh, wow, not so long ago then. Yeah. So as part of the procedure, moulded speakers were placed in her ears, uh, which produced clicks to see if there was any brain activity, because I guess that's quite important. Now, Reynolds was brought into the operating room at 7.15am and remember starting to blank out as the anaesthesia took effect. But it's what she remembered next that is truly remarkable. She started to become aware of a musical tone in her ear that seemed to pull her out of the top of her head. She says, The further out of my body I got the more clear the tone became. I had the impression it was like a road, a frequency that you go on. I remember seeing several things in the operating room when I was looking down. So that sounds like a classic out-of-body, near-death experience, but it, it ramps up. It was the most aware that I think that I've ever been in my entire life. It was brighter and more focused and clearer than normal vision. There was so much in the operating room that I didn't recognise and so many people. She also remembers being shocked at how she looked on the operating table, that the medical team had partially shaved her head. She even remembers seeing the bone saw that the surgeon Spetzler was using on her skull. Not only does she remember seeing it, she describes it in quite strong detail. She says, The saw thing. It looked like an electric toothbrush and it had a dent in it, a groove at the top where the saw appeared to go into the handle, but it didn't. And the saw had interchangeable blades too, 
but these blades were in what looked like a socket wrench case. I heard the saw crank up. It's quite a detailed description, right? That's a lot of detail. I mean, I was sort of looking the other direction because I'm quite squeamish, but yes, I can understand that is very... That's something she probably wouldn't have seen while she was awake. This next bit's a little bit squeamish, but I'm going to kind of toad it as much as I can. Okay, I'll be humming in my head. Okay. So Reynolds also remembers medical staff commenting on how her veins and arteries were very small, which she observed resulted in a female surgeon having to make an incision in her leg to help the blood flow from her heart for the heart-lung machine. Now, there is a lot more detail about the medical procedure. I'm not going to go into it, not oh, just because it's going to make you feel queasy, but I felt queasy when I read it. Oh, uh, yeah, no, neither of us like this stuff. Yeah, neither of us do, but there was a lot of detail. But the upshot is, after a couple of hours, the process of putting blood back into a system and reactivating the brain started. Reynolds had been clinically dead for about an hour and started to come back round in the recovery room at 2.10pm. I mean, that's quite an ordeal because she started at 7.15am. I mean, I was thinking that it might take longer than that, but how amazing that they... I presume they pulled it off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, she survived. Reynolds later described what she experienced during the time she was clinically dead. She says, There was a sensation like being pulled but not against your will. I was going on my own accord because I wanted to go. I have different metaphors to try and explain this. It was like the Wizard of Oz being taken up in a tornado vortex. Only you're not spinning around like you've got vertigo. You're very focused and you have a place to go. The feeling was like going up in an elevator really fast and there was a sensation but it wasn't a bodily, physical sensation. It was like a tunnel, but it wasn't a tunnel. At some point, very early in the tunnel vortex, I became aware of my grandmother calling me. But I didn't hear her call me with my ears. It was a clearer hearing than with my ears. I trust that sense more than I trust my own ears. Remember, this is a musician. Right, yeah. The feeling was that she wanted me to come to her So I continued with no fear down the shaft. It's a dark shaft that I went through, and at the very end there was very little tiny pinpoints of light that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The light was incredibly bright, like sitting in the middle of a light bulb. It was so bright that I put my hands in front of my face, fully expecting to see them, but I could not. But I knew they were there. Not from a sense of touch, Again, it's terribly hard to explain, but I knew they were there. I noticed that as I began to discern different figures in the light, and they were all covered with light, they were light, and had light permeating all around them, and they began to form shapes that I could recognise and understand. I could see that one of them was my grandmother. I don't know if it was reality or projection, but I would know my grandmother, the sound of her, anytime, anywhere. Everyone I saw, looking back on it, fit perfectly into my understanding of what that person looked like at their very best during their lives, which I think that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I recognised a lot of people. My Uncle Gene was there. So was my great-aunt, Auntie Maggie, who was really a cousin. On Papa's side of my family, my grandfather was there. 
They were specifically taking care of me, looking after me. But they would not permit me to go further. It was communicated to me. That's the best way I know how to say it. Because they didn't speak like I'm speaking. That if I went all the way into the light, something would happen to me physically. They would not be able to put this me back into the body me. Like I'd gone too far and they couldn't reconnect. Oh, I see. So they wouldn't let me go anywhere or do anything. They're almost kind of holding her in this position. This is fascinating as well. Then they were feeding me. They were not doing this through my mouth like with food, but they were nourishing me with something. The only way I know how to put it is something sparkly. Sparkles is the image that I get. I definitely recall the sensation of being nurtured and being fed and being made strong. I know it sounds funny because obviously it wasn't a physical thing, but inside the experience I felt physically strong, ready for whatever. My grandmother didn't take me back through the tunnel or even send me back or ask me to go. She just looked up at me. I expected to go with her, but it was communicated to me that she just didn't think she would do that. My uncle said he would do it. He's the one who took me back through the end of the tunnel. Everything was fine. I did want to go. But then I got to the end of it and saw the thing, my body. I didn't want to get into it. It looked terrible, like a train wreck. It looked like what it was, dead. I believe it was covered. It scared me and I didn't want to look at it. It was communicating to me that it was like jumping into a swimming pool. No problem, just jump right into the swimming pool. I didn't want to, but I guess it was late or something because he, her uncle, pushed me. I felt a definite repelling and at the same time pulling from the body. My body was pulling and the tunnel was pushing. It was like diving into a pool of ice water. It hurt. Oh, that doesn't sound very pleasant. It's so detailed though, isn't it? Is it is incredibly detailed, but could it just be misfiring neurons? If you take it at face value, this is at the point in the procedure, there are no neurons firing. Are they sure of this, though? That For that hour, yeah. Because they're monitoring her brain patterns? Yeah. So it has to be something happening... Well, the assumption is something happening outside of her body. Yeah, unless you kind of go down a spiritual route. There, there's a next bit, which is really interesting. Then we'll get on to some of the theories as well. I will come back to that. So back in the operating theatre, when they completed the operation and were bringing Reynolds back to life, they started playing music in the theatre, and Reynolds remembers this. She said, they were playing Hotel California, and the line was, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. I mentioned later to Dr Brown that that was incredibly insensitive. It really is. <laughs> yeah. And he told me that I needed to sleep more. <laughs> When I eventually regained consciousness, I was still on the respirator. So this music was played at, like pretty much as soon as they were bringing her back. So again, she shouldn't have had any recollection of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In an interview with MSNBC, after Reynolds had made a full recovery, she claimed she had lost her fear of death. She said, if death is the worst thing that happens to us, what an incredible thing. 
If at the end of our lives, this is what's going to happen to everyone, I don't see the problem. I really don't get it. I fear pain, but I don't fear death. So it changed her life? Changed her life. What do the, is there any comment from the doctors about what they make of this? Yeah, I'm going to close with that because that is quite oh, okay. chilling. Oh, oh God, I don't want to be chilled. Well, chilling in a, in a, in a hair on the back of your neck. Oh, OK, I don't mind that. Pam Reels did live a healthy life until she died of heart failure age 53, nearly 20 years after the operation. Now, I know that's a young age, but that is a hell of a lot longer than she would have lived if she'd not had the operation. I mean, mm. her, her death was pretty imminent when she had the operation. It is an amazing story. Should we do some fact-checking? Oh, no. Is some of this not true? No, this is... This is Again, the, the fact-checking is really interesting. After examining the operative report and interviews with the surgeon Spetzler, it was determined that Reynolds' experience could not have been the result of a temporal lobe seizure, which would have maybe explained it. No seizures were recorded. The report referred to a female doctor talking about small blood vessels, apparently confirming Reynolds' memory of having heard the comment which, again, she, was, she shouldn't have been able to hear. And she couldn't have heard the comment normally, as by, the t by this time her ears had been stopped by the moulded speakers that were generating loud kicks. So, you know, even if there was some awareness in her, she couldn't have heard it through the, the things in her ears. And these comments were made about the same time that the saw was started up. Now, Reynolds' description of the saw resembling an electric toothbrush and its case resembling a socket wrench case they were also correct. Okay, so everything checks out. Well, let me give you a little bit of a sceptic view. Although I have to say, I, I read quite a few sceptic views of this case. And though some of it does make sense from a sceptical point of view, a lot of it is not very convincing, I would say. And I'll see what you think as well. I guess the main one is kind of what you were talking about, that maybe Reynolds was taking in information from when she was not technically dead. So this kind of happened. Yeah. Her visions, hallucinations, if you want to call them that, took place during the process of being anaesthetised or when she was being brought back to life, effectively. Right, yes. Either end of the procedure, yes. And that would be a credible conclusion if it wasn't for the fact that some of the details Reynolds describes only took place when she was clinically dead so in that hour right okay the sore the talk the nurses talking now critics have tried to explain this let's see what you think Ben. reynolds hearing the medical staff talking about her small veins could be explained by the fact that reynolds had previous knowledge of having small veins and would have expected the medical staff to be talking about it okay yeah that makes sense. Yes, yeah, sort of Sherlockian deduction there. Yeah. Although, again, it seems like a, it's a hell of a kind of thing to focus on, isn't it? It is. But yes, it does make sense. The sceptics say that Reynolds' accurate description of the drill can be explained away by the fact that Reynolds might know what dental drills look like and made the assumption that that's the drill that would be used on her, that it would look the same. Oh, it was a dental drill, was it? No, it wasn't, but it, it's got a similar it's got a look. similar. I mean, it's a funny thing to make up, but yeah, okay. If you follow the sceptic story, 
or the the critical story, let's say, skeptics are the wrong word, I think, in this context, but the critical story, these things could have happened at the point where she was being anesthetized. And I guess the drill and the other stuff is almost coincidence, you know, maybe. Yeah. Perhaps the most compelling evidence that she did experience something which I guess you would regard as paranormal comes from the reaction of the medical staff when Reynolds started to tell them about her experience. Reynolds says, I thought I had hallucinations and when I talked with my family and my husband, we were joking about it. That made everyone laugh, with the exception of the nurses, the doctors, the anesthesiologist. (laughs) They didn't seem to find it funny and they hardly dared look at me. In fact, they knew that I was not hallucinating and that this had occurred. They had never heard of such things before. I thought maybe it was my imagination and I'd had a dream, but they told me that this was not the case and what I saw really happened. They kept telling me that it was not a hallucination. Yeah, I guess it doesn't sound like a hallucination, but that seems like quite an emotive thing for them to go... Oh, it definitely wasn't a hallucination. Keep telling me yeah. that's not a hallucination. I sort of worry that that's a lot of hyperbole. I guess we're not getting that from the doctors themselves. It's no. her interpretation of it. I think, I'm not 100% sure, I think that this that quote may have come from an interview she did with Art Bell. Ah, uh, right, okay, sure. So I don't, I'm not casting aspersions on that, but uh, I guess with that audience you might try and kind of Enlarge the story somewhat. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm, I don't want to be disingenuous, but either way, an incredible experience that she had. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, like, did anybody try and do a follow-up on this? If you try and follow it up, what have you got apart from just people... It's just reporting at this stage, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess she says that a lot of this stuff happened when it she couldn't have been aware of it. Yeah, it could have been coincidence, but yeah, hard to know. I wanted to bring us right up to date and return to scientific research. And an article published by Science.org in May 2023, written by Sarah Reardon. New study hints how consciousness can continue after heart stops. Now, this study may also cast light on the cliche of our lives passing before our eyes. Oh, yes. The article says... Many people who have come close to death or have been resuscitated report a similar experience. Their lives flash before their eyes, memorable moments replay, and they may undergo an out-of-body experience, sensing they're looking at themselves from elsewhere in the room. Now, a small study mapping the brain activity of four people when they were dying shows a burst of activity in their brains after the heart stops. The authors say the findings published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences may explain how a person's brain could replay conscious memories even after the heart has stopped. It suggests we are identifying a marker of lucid consciousness, says Sam Parnier, who was involved in the other study. He's a pulmonologist at New York University. Although death has historically been medically defined as the moment when the heart irreversibly stops beating, recent studies have suggested brain activity in many animals and humans can continue for seconds, even hours. That's terrifying, to be fair. Yeah. She says we have this binary concept of life and death that is ancient and outdated. 
Still, despite the numerous reports of hundreds of years from people who have been resuscitated following clinical death or near-death experiences, I was shocked to realise we know almost nothing about brain activity during the dying process, says Borjinjan, who is one of the scientists involved in the study. For the current study, she and her team looked at medical records of four people who were in comas and on life support and whom physicians had placed, here we go with the word... I'm standing by. Electroencephalography caps. I'm going to do that again. Electroencephalography caps. It's a good Scrabble score, but very difficult to say. Oh my God, there's no Z in it, though. <laughs> no, there's no Z in it. <laughs> None of the patients, um, that, so these are patients who weren't going to survive. The caps they placed on them, I'm not saying it again, but those special caps. <laughs> the electric ones? Yeah, the Dofloflody ones. Oh, yes. If I say it quickly, will it work? Mr. Stoffelgoffigus. The, uh, the electrocorrhythmic caps continually monitor the electrical signals moving across the surface of each patient's brain. So before and after physicians removed their ventilators, during each patient's last memorable heartbeat and up until all brain activity had ceased. So they cover the whole spectrum. Seconds after their ventilators were removed, two of the patient's brains suddenly lit up with a burst of neuronal activity in high-frequency patterns called gamma waves that continued as the heart stopped beating. Other studies have found the same pattern when a healthy person is actively recalling a memory, learning, dreaming, and some neuroscientists have linked these oscillations with consciousness. Ajmal Zemmer, a neurosurgeon at the University of Louisville, says gamma waves may signal that different brain regions are working together to combine disparate sensations into a conscious awareness of an object, putting together the right sights, smells and sounds of, say, a car, for instance. How the brain does this, he says, is one of the biggest mysteries in neuroscience. But seeing the same gamma waves in dying people suggests a biological mechanism for the reports of the brain replaying memory, memorable events in those final moments. So that could explain why your life passes before your eyes, because you've mm. had this burst of gamma radiation, gamma radiation, gamma energy. His, his lab previously saw similar gamma waves in one person who had died while that person's brain was being monitored for seizures. This paper is really important for the field of consciousness um, says biomedical scientist Charlotte Marshall of the University of Liège, who studies near-death experience. She was not surprised that only two of the four people in the study showed the gamma activity, given that not all people who survived near-death experiences report memory recall or out-of-body experiences. Yeah, otherwise we'd all have them, right? Right, yeah. Borgin notes that two people whose brain showed gamma activity had also had a history of seizures, which she says could have primed their brains to experience abnormal rhythms. Her team also saw increased electric, electrical activity in a brain region called the... OK, you ready? Is this a big one? I think this is bigger than the last one. Oh, no. In a brain region called the Temporo Parioto Occipital. Occipital. I'll do that again. Temporo Parioto Occipital junction. Oh, oh okay. Um, I don't know where that is, but... 
Okay. It's, a bit, it's a bit of the brain and it's a junction. Okay. <laughs> Don't get too technical with me. <laughs> I think that's probably a better Scrabble score, isn't it? It it's is. Longer. And well, well done. Thank you. So it's believed this part of the brain is involved in consciousness and is activated during dreaming, seizures and out-of-body hallucinations. So it's kind of your subconsciously bit. Made me think of um, sleep paralysis as well. That. Oh, yeah. Mm. So she thinks this um, burst of brain activity is part of a survival mode that the brain is known to enter once it's deprived of oxygen. She says studies of animals undergoing brain death have found that the organs begin to release numerous signalling molecules and create unusual brainwave patterns to try and resuscitate itself, even as it shuts down external signs of consciousness. I like this quote. She said, It shuts the door to the outside world and takes care of the internal business because the house is on fire. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a really good description, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that tells me what's going on. Yeah, I like that. They hope to replicate the findings by collaborating with other medical centres to study brain activity in patients. Finding some answers to how the dying process occurs would be crucial. Zemmer says, because death is a sort of mystery, we don't really know what it is. Yeah, that really struck with me, that um, that kind of trying to prevent the, the house burning down thing. Yeah. Your brain just fires off. So... I've got I've got one more bit and then um, I'll have a final thought. But I started to think, Ben, I wanted to find out whether quantum mechanics had anything to say on the concept of life after death. Oh, good place to go. But Ben, then then I thought that's going to involve a hell of a lot of reading. <laughs> and then I thought the conclusion is going to be something like life after death both exists and doesn't exist in a state of quantum entanglement. Yeah. It's going to be that, right? Schrodinger's thing, yeah. yes, yes. But I thought I shouldn't give up. And given our conversation last week about chat GBT, I thought I'd let them do the work. Oh, what did it say? So I asked them, I said, hi, I'm a friend of Ben's. Amazing. <laughs> Can you tell me what quantum mechanics can tell us about life after death? Now, Ben, ChatGPT didn't acknowledge you at all in its answer. Oh, rude. You two really have got beef, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> but what it did say, I thought was quite a good conclusion. It said, The idea of life after death is largely a philosophical and religious concept rather than a scientific one. Quantum mechanics doesn't offer any concrete evidence or explanations for what happens to consciousness or the self after death. It primarily deals with the behaviour of physical systems and doesn't directly address metaphysical questions. That said, some people have speculated about possible connections between quantum mechanics and consciousness, leading to various interpretations and hypotheses. However, these ideas remain speculative and controversial within the scientific community, and there is currently no empirical evidence to support them. Ultimately, the question about life and death are deeply personal and often transcend the realm of science. Different cultures, religions and philosophical traditions offer diverse perspectives on these matters, and individuals may find meaning and comfort exploring these questions through their own beliefs and experiences. 
Well, I think it's trying to butter you up. <laughs> You're just jealous that it's nice to me, aren't you? It is nice to you. It would have just told me to bugger off. <laughs> it would have. It would have gone. Yeah, stop wasting my time, Ben. That's all it ever tells me. Well, I would see if it. I wanted, That's why I asked it if he knew Ben. You know, this. I'm a friend of Ben's, seeing what he do. I think um, he might be winding me up. <laughs> anyway, I like. I like what it wrote, even if I hate it. Yeah, and I think it's difficult to know. Well, the science, it's fascinating. I mean, I think most of the scientific papers lend to some conscious process that definitely goes on at the point of death for some, maybe most people. Um, whether that's evidence of a soul or life after death, probably not. But it's it's interesting. To It shows that with a lot of these things, we know very little about the process, even from a scientific point of view, let alone a philosophical one. I wanted to close with the fav- my favourite quote about... <laughs> I thought you were going to say a song. <laughs> <laughs> no, a quote. Okay. I wa- with a quote, it's probably my favourite quote about death, and it's by Mark Twain. He says, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. <laughs> well that's true that is true that is one way of putting it you know everything you were saying there makes me think when you're talking about like um the evidence of people seeing things on the operating table and stuff like that i couldn't help think it reminds me a lot of people who are reincarnated and claim to remember previous lives Mm. there's quite a lot of similarity there between the two circumstances in a way yeah i mean no they're not related but you see what i mean yeah yeah um, and I find it, again, frustrating that we can prove neither. Yes, and I, I, I'm always, when I come back to these things, I'm always, like I thought the um, the example of Pam on the operating theatre was incredible and just, the, I guess, the poetic and vivid way that she described her experiences really kind of touched me and moved me again if you put the skeptic hat on you kind of my first thought was well what she did experience yeah writing that off as a coincidence is yeah that seems crazy but then I remembered back to the episode we did on probability and coincidences and often what you think would be incredibly high odds coincidences are not that high odds do you know what I mean it's intriguing, that story. I, I didn't come away going, wow, that's proof of life after death, but I didn't come away going, it can just be dismissed. I thought that it was an open an open case, let's put it that way. I think it definitely is an open case. Pretty much like everything we talk about, <laughs> yeah. it's an open case. Yeah. But that's why we talk about it, because none of it is provable. I do hope that the piece about the light and... All of that uh, sort of um, procedure, if you want to call it, that procedure sounds wrong, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I hope that applies to pets as well. I hope there's a dog waiting for me. Yeah, well, I think that's the other thing you might want to take away from Pam's experience and actually some of the science. This thing is, it doesn't seem, whatever the process is, whether it's a kind of chemical or spiritual one, it seems to be in some ways a safe and pleasant experience to make you know depending on your beliefs those last moments not stressful um 
you know, or prepare you for the next world, whichever way you look at it. Either way, we should probably just be nice to people. That's yeah. I don't think people need to be scared by the notion of um, sort of vengeance in the afterlife. Yeah. But it does. It is. It does pay to be nice. Yeah, definitely. And kind, and not torture dogs like that horrible man. Yes, yes. And then decide they didn't have a soul. I thought they would upset you. <sighs> he really did. Next yeah. week, I'm. Next week, I'm going to do something where a dog wins. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> well, that was those were great stories, and um, yeah, I, they're a bit squeamish, but it, it, not too squeamish. We got there in the end; it was worth it. Yeah, and I, I, I guess I really liked the um, the Native American story. Yeah, as that's well. great. That's great. Just having some, you know almost folklore and kind of spiritual message around the concept of yeah when you die you die i just thought it was brilliant well my final thought is as i i couldn't get out of my head the idea the notion of having your eyes horizontal and i don't think we as a species would have invented soup if that was the case because you keep getting hot things in your eye that is true in that other in that other universe you have to have gaspacho wouldn't you you'd have to have gaspacho and yeah, your oh, noodles would be bad too. Noodles. Yeah. Oh, noodles and soup. No, we'd have lost that. So perhaps it's a good idea that whichever one of those two won the argument, yeah. the eyes went either side. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much. That was great. And um, we will see you next time. But before we go, let me remind you, TQM pod on the Patreons, follow us on the social. I'm still looking for anybody that's had any experiences with streetlight interference, SLI, I'll be recording that next week. I've been trawling for some great stories. I have got some great stories, but if any of you guys have got one, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, and we should have some more Sherlock news next week as well. Oh, yes, yes, Sherlock news. Yeah, we're saving that, yes. Cool. All right. Well, look, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics